1: Thank you for listening to this St. Louis on the Air podcast brought to you by Lindenwood University's Hammond Institute for Free Enterprise. Examining market approaches to help solve economic and social issues, Institute.
2: Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. Our Legal Roundtable panel has a wide lens on issues in the legal world this month. We'll focus on some of them, ranging from the national emergency and its fallout to efforts locally to minimize the punitive use of fines and fees. Joining me in studio is our panel of attorneys. Mark Smith is Associate Vice Chancellor and Dean for Career Services at Washington University. Bill Freivogel is Professor of Journalism at SIU in Carbondale. And Donna Harper is with the Sade-Harper-Westhoff law firm, Donna, welcome back. Good to see you again. Thank you. I'd like to start, and th- welcome to you, gentlemen. Oh, nice. too. <laughs> uh, I'd like to start with the national emergency. Everybody's talking about it. At least five lawsuits have been filed uh, against the uh, challenge of the declaration that the president made a couple of weeks ago. The California attorney general has filed a suit representing 16 states. So this thing has got uh, a, a little lump to it, it would appear. And basically, saying the president extended uh, his authority and circumvented Congress to issue that emergency. <laughs> president Trump has said he didn't have to do it. I didn't have to do it. Remember that at his news conference. Mm-hmm. Does that kill any
0: defense that he has for this thing?
2: Anybody? have a I, thing? I don't think
0: it kills any defense. I mean, it contradicts that there's any kind of emergency here. But, you know, you remember back in the travel ban case, Trump had said repeatedly it was a Muslim ban, but the Supreme Court, you know, they don't really, they sort of dismissed those sort of campaign statements that were made before before the election, back in the travel ban case. You know, I don't think they want to, to get too, too far into Trump's statements, they'll sort of stick more with what does the emergency declaration itself says. Mm. One, one sort of funny thing about that is that uh, uh, he, he probably has enough money from the other, the other pots of additional money that he has identified. He probably has enough money to do what he can do during this fiscal year anyway without even using. He doesn't even need the emergency declaration to unlock some additional DOD money uh, that he wants to have access to. So in a way, it it, it probably won't have a huge amount of practical impact on how much wall gets built. I I think the case itself is really hard. It's a really close case. Uh, Supreme Court back in the 50s said in this – when, when Harry Truman tried to st- uh, seize the steel mills at the presidential emergency powers don't reach that far, and they said particularly when Congress has expressed its view contrary to what the president's trying to do, the president's powers are the weakest. But there, we're talking about constitutional powers. After steel seizure, Congress in the, the, I guess it was in the 70s, passed this uh, law giving the president power to declare emergency. Presidents have done that many times since, I think 50 plus, but none of them have been like this one where You know, he had already tried to get the money from Congress, and Congress had very specifically uh, refused to to provide more than the 1.3 billion that that they provided. So, you know, then that raises this court sort of separation of powers questions. Doesn't power have the the Congress have the power over the purse?
1: I wonder whether the court will even get to those issues. <clears throat> There's a couple of easy ways that the court could just dispose of any of these lawsuits. Um, you know, first on standing grounds, do these states really have the right to bring claims along these lines? And second, until he actually tries to spend this money, there hasn't been any kind of a harm. I mean, as you point out, Bill, he hasn't even gotten to the money they gave him, what, last year? Not to mention the money they gave him this you know, year. Right. So, by the time he spends last year's money and maybe the money they gave him this year, these lawsuits uh, could be easily disposed of on those grounds, I think. I think
3: there, two of the states are on the border, at least two New Mexico and California, but they've said they're not building walls there. And Texas. And that, oh, Texas, Texas, okay. And then, um, but like New, jo- New York and New Jersey and Hawaii, they don't have any. You know, so I, I think your argument about standing and then they've already the president's already said we're going to use the the allocated money first. So there's there's a ripeness issue. Is it do we really have a an issue? And then, you know, what Bill was talking about was the constitutional limits on the president. We've had presidents in the past who've done more egregious things. You know, uh, Roosevelt entering the Japanese uh, that was under his executive powers. Lincoln. which the Supreme had, Court approved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Yeah. But not one of our better <laughs> moments as a, a country. Yeah. And then uh, Lincoln um, you know habeas suspending corpus. habeas corpus and then and now we've got this 1976 statute that gives the president more so I, I think I think this is probably going to go forward for the, both of the reasons and then we've got this statutory kind of broad grant to the president, so. I mean, I
1: think po- it, uh, go ahead. Yeah. So at some point, I think there will be the ability on the part of people who are affected by this to challenge this emergency declaration at some point. I just I think right now the easy way to get rid of it is to say it's not right. Right. Yeah. Nobody's been harmed yet. You don't have to stick your hand down on the sofa to get that money that the Defense Department's got <laughs> laying around. Well there are a couple because of, you haven't spent what you've already got.
0: There are a couple of property holders, you know, who clearly
3: have uh, would, would would clearly I think have standing.
0: And but they know,
3: would so only have for I mean, then the government come back and say, "I'm in a domain," and then they would just get fair market value. Well, they're
0: challenging, but they, ch- they would if if it's done under the you know if if if, if the act if they're moving forward under the emergency uh, powers proclaimed by the president, they could get to that issue. I think it's very possible. I think it's very likely that somebody's going to end up withstanding, and I think it's very likely that w- that some judge, some federal judge, is going to issue an emergency injunction saying the president can't move forward on move forward and in that case then we end up in this whole other sort of little understood uh you know preliminary rapid appeal to the supreme Supreme court Court. so you know then there so there if it were an injunction issued against the president then we would end up in the ninth, uh, Well, in some co- uh, court of appeals, very possibly the Ninth Circuit, if if it's a you're, California case. You're sounding case. a lot like Trump I'm here. I'm sounding like w- Trump. W- yeah. Uh, the Ninth Circuit <laughs> could— Without could, the sing-song. Could, right? Could, yeah, right. could well—I'm I'm, sounding a little yeah. sing-song. Yeah, the yeah. Ninth Circuit could very well— um, a, a, agree with the injunction and say the president couldn't move forward then it would go on these emergency basis not even dealing with the merits of the case to the supreme court and the supreme court might you know i don't know what they would do
3: you don't think they would say that the president has power
0: you know, on an emergency i don't know if they would if they, if they would say it right off off the bat without mm-hmm. having hold held a hearing maybe they would say okay we got to hear this case really fast and expedite it you know uh, it's, yeah, it's tough
1: to think that they could find a real emergency when just this morning, I think the news was that there are 58 former security officials from both Republican and Democratic administrations who've signed on to uh, something that they've that they've presented that says there's no emergency. It's also tough to believe they could find a real emergency when for the last two years nothing happened, and then nothing happened from the time, you know, the, the idea of an emergency came up in, what, November? But the statute
3: doesn't have any, like, um, requirements for what an emergency might be. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I agree with you as a matter of just logic. And facts. Um, yeah, and facts. But I think as a matter of law... I think he could get this through and by the Supreme Court.
0: Yeah, as a matter of law, the Supreme Court doesn't want to second guess.
3: Yeah. what is an emergency? We have a, that's a listener, that's for the and President Clayton, to
0: decide.
2: A listener in Clayton writes. Bob says uh, uh, he writes. When the courts consider the emergency declaration, will they take into account data showing whether the border emergency is real? Or will they only consider whether the declaration violates the law?
1: You mean the idea that border crossings, according to the yeah. the agencies that monitor this stuff, are at a forty-year low? Yeah, <laughs> the invasion we're talking yeah. about. Who, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I, I guess don't it, think they will.
0: I guess it will depend upon you know what's in the record of the lower court, uh, you know, decision. But but yeah, I think very much the Supreme Court doesn't want to be looking at competing. Uh, arguments about data and emergency and they want to look at what does the emergency order say? Is it awful? And, and not get into second
3: guessing the president. I mean, I think a better way to stop him would be for Congress to do something. But I just don't yeah. think there's enough votes in Congress to, to well, certainly not that. to override a veto. Override, exactly. There's probably
1: enough votes to get it to a veto. But he just said this morning, he's going to veto and right. that would require a A little uh, more starch in some spines than we've seen. That gets voted on in the House
2: tomorrow, by the way, that resolution that they've cooked up. Uh, We have a new attorney general, William Barr, confirmed. Uh, What can we expect from Mr. Barr? Does anyone have any feeling for
0: what we might expect from him?
2: He's been there before.
0: Well, I think we can expect uh, that he won't be a, a whole lot different than than Sessions, uh, he won't be as big of a target for for President Trump as Sessions turned out to be. Um, not, not for a while. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, he's very conservative on law enforcement issues. I don't think he's got quite the B in his bonnet about marijuana that that uh, Sessions had. Um, but um, but I think we can expect pretty similar things. The biggest, you know, he, he will face his biggest hurdle right off the bat probably the biggest hurdle he'll have during whatever time he's attorney general, and that is what part uh, of a Mueller report uh, he will release. And that's going to be a huge, uh, huge controversy. He has said in the confirmation hearings that uh, he will release as much as uh, the law allows him to release. But, you know, it's Justice Department policy. If you don't indict somebody, you don't right. explain why, even if Comey did uh, in connection with uh, Clinton, with Hillary Clinton.
2: There, there's a question as to whether there's even going to be a report. One of the things I've heard recently is it may just be a series of indictments. That's period. right.
1: That's yeah. right, because Congress reacted uh pretty harshly to the depth and detail of the Clinton report Mm -hmm. and passed a statute that allows the special counsel here to just say yay on a page of indictments and nay on a page of indictments, Mm -hmm. and that's it. That's the end of it. So...
2: Well, um, we're not going to get that anything this week. A lot of people were speculating it was going to happen this week. That apparently is not going to be the case. One other thing before we take a break, I'd like to spend a little time discussing is uh, the the president's former personal lawyer, uh, Mr. Cohen, will be testifying before Congress uh, this week on Wednesday. And we're going to be carrying that here. NPR will be uh, all day, as I understand it. Okay, the president's personal attorney Obviously, they've had many conversations on legal issues. Where does the client privilege issue come into play here? What can he
1: say, or can he just waive that uh, before well, any, anybody? Yeah, well, I mean, for, for, for one thing, with respect to the Stormy Daniels payments, yes. uh, Trump has said, he's not my lawyer. So if Trump says he's not my lawyer, Trump is the one who has the privilege. The client always has the privilege. If he says he's not my lawyer, then there isn't a privilege. So whatever Cohen says or doesn't say to Congress or anybody else about Stormy Daniels, it doesn't implicate an attorney-client privilege that hasn't doesn't exist and wasn't asserted. On the other, um, on the other issues that may arise where he may actually have had an attorney-client relationship with the president, I mean those attorney-client privileges can, uh, they are not absolute. There's a crime fraud exception. So if you as the client direct your lawyer to commit a crime, uh, you can't claim that that direction that you gave is privileged. A court can say, no, it's not. And then there's a sort of a third more arcane area that my husband clued me into, and he does criminal defense work. And that is that when uh, the When prosecutors want to take a look at matters, documents, emails, whatever, that might implicate an attorney-client privilege, they send in a special group of U.S. attorneys who are uh, separate from the actual attorneys who will prosecute the cl- claim, they look at documents, they look at emails, they make a preliminary d- decision whether they are privileged. That decision is reviewed by a judge looking at the documents in camera, and then with those two layers of protection, the documents may or may not be released to the prosecutors. And that's what
3: happened in the Second Circuit, right? They, they, I mean, they, I think they found like, what, seven in or eight of them court. were yeah, privileged, and then they said- Right, that was the, the taint group. Yeah, right. it, <laughs> So yeah.
2: can we assume that all of this is this procedure is process has gone through in conversations with uh, Robert
3: Mueller? Well, this Cohen's, this did, the Cone thing. Mueller spun off to Southern District Southern of New York. Southern District of New York. Of New York. Right. So they're doing the investigation. That this is very different from the uh, Clinton um, the star investigation, yeah, right. where where they kept just giving him more and more responsibility. Mueller's stayed like laser focused and spun things off the the other thing with the attorney-client privilege is um, if you know Bill's my client and I'm his attorney and we're talking but then we bring you into the room uh, that could also breach the privilege uh, having a third party not always but a lot of times and it sounds like um, and and also I think it's important to remember you know you don't just have an attorney that's your attorney for everything and every conversation we have you know if if uh, uh, Bill's retained me to talk about, um, you know, his his Ponzi scheme he set up, but then on the way out tells me, and yeah, uh, it got me so upset that I just, you know, beat the uh, beat up my neighbor. Well, that's not the beat up your neighbor's not protected because that's a different crime. It's outside yeah. the Ponzi scheme we're working on. So basically, which is probably crime fraud. I'm not entirely sure, sure about, about that. It. Well, you're I a good lawyer. You're going to the I think if the Bill
1: told you on the way out. I'm going to go do grievous bodily harm to my neighbor. Then you'd have to. Tell that would not be a privileged.
0: And, and to bring it back to, to this situation, I think that uh, you know, it's there's no privilege if a person if a person is asking a lawyer to com- commit a crime. Right. So you know, if, if Trump is saying something to Cohen about you know, don't tell him how long we were negotiating about that Trump Tower on, in Moscow, you know that that, that, that telling. Congress to lying to Congress is a crime. It's a, it's not so it couldn't would not be privileged.
2: Mm-hmm. I'm confused now. Has Cohen talked to Mueller, or is that
0: totally off the off the? Table? Yes, Cohen has Cohen right. has talked to Mueller.
1: Right. I think I think he's talked to Mueller. He's talked yeah. to the Southern District of New York U.S. Attorney's Office, and now he's supposed to talk to Congress, Congress. in a confidential setting. Well, it's going
2: to be public public. on Wednesday, but there are two other sessions scheduled that uh, are Tuesday, Thursday are confidential, right? Wednesday. Uh, That's that's right, yeah. Okay, I've got to take a break. Let's do that now. We'll come back and talk about some local issues that are making news these days, and that will be in just a moment. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. to our conversation with our attorney friends, Bill Freivogel, Mark Smith, and Donna Harper. Guys, we have a whole bunch of things here that have popped up during the last month concerning, uh, associated with criminal justice reform, fine, fees, bail, and that sort of thing. Um, I'll go through a list of them and we can discuss them as I do. First thing, Bill, you and I have had conversations, two conversations recently about the Supreme Court ruling on forfeiture. Uh, basically dealing with uh, the prohibition on excessive fines, that it applies to states. Um, how, not much impact in the civil asset forfeiture realm, which you've been writing about, and which we have talked about, for now, but it could come back here in Missouri, could have an impact here in Missouri.
0: It, it, it could. Uh, yeah, so the Supreme Court said that states have to abide by the part of the Eighth Amendment of the Bill of Rights that says uh, you, you can't have excessive fines. And um, most states, um, you know, already uh, were, were following the excessive fines uh, a part of the Eighth Amendment. Uh, so it didn't, have, it, it didn't have a direct effect on Missouri, for example. But it actually had – it ended up having a, a – a substan- so far, at least, a pretty significant um, practical effect because – uh, the day after the Supreme Court decision, decision which was I think the decision was last uh, Wednesday and the next day the uh, committee of the uh, Missouri House that was chaired by uh, uh, Shamed Dogan uh, passed a, uh, a bill that would uh, put a big restriction on how civil asset forfeiture is conducted in the state of Missouri. Um, they basically say, uh, cut off. Uh, so, in, in the state of Missouri, about five million dollars of the nine million dollars uh, that uh, police seize on highways around um, around the state uh, is uh, doesn't go to the schools like state law would say it 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 should. But instead, they uh, send it through a federal workaround right. that comes back to the police departments to spend on their own purposes. Phelps County down where Raleigh is uh, has about $2 million a year of this. St. Charles County about $3 million a year of this. This is what we've been writing about. Well, Dogen's uh, uh, propo- uh, bill that passed his committee in the House, and, and he thinks has a pretty good chance to pass the House, uh, would say – you can't, uh, You know, St. Charles County, Phelps County—you can't do that anymore. Mm -hmm. You can't send it to the feds and get it out from under all the restrictions that state law puts on it. So, uh, you know, in those five million dollars of cases, uh, the people who are stopped are never charged with a fine with 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 a crime. Mm -hmm. Uh, So they could so so that would it would shut off that whole five million dollar avenue of funding for a couple of uh, police departments. So if that passes the legislature, there will actually be a a very significant effect in Missouri. Yeah.
2: There there is something of a trend going on here in Missouri and other states too, as you've indicated. Let me quickly go through these. The Chief Justice of Missouri's highest court, the Supreme Court, has announced plans to restrict courts from charging defendants bail as a condition of their release before trial, this will go into effect on July 1st. The Missouri Supreme Court is considering cases eliminating debtors' prisons. We've all also talked about that. Inmates charged for room and board, but uh, they can't pay, so they go back to jail, where the bill just goes higher. Uh, Kim Gardner here, Circuit Attorney in St. Louis, will not demand cash bail for low-level felonies. It seems to me, Donna, like this is something like a wave.
1: It seems to me to be a wave, and it seems to me to be just a recognition of the fact that we're putting people in prison are in jail, holding them. They, they cause them to lose their jobs. Their families fall apart. They can't pay their rent. They can't pay their mortgages. It, 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 it's destroying communities. And these aren't violent felons. Mm-hmm. These are people who are charged sometimes with just misdemeanor offenses that have nothing to do with real public safety. I mean, the the, the case of the uh, person who couldn't pay his taxicab bill and was held in, in jail for six months and then got out and didn't make it back to one of his hearings and got thrown back in jail and, you know, the fines are starting all over again. That that doesn't seem to be what the system is designed to do and they're
2: charged room and board sometimes thousands of dollars when uh, all of this happens
1: yeah these board
0: board bills that uh, tony messenger at the post-dispatch has been writing about and that one of these court cases uh, involves are just outrageous you know putting people in in jail for not being able to pay for the last time that they were put in jail uh, it's just uh, it's just ridiculous you know all of this is really an outgrowth I mean, it's a reaction to Ferguson. Ferguson, Ferguson, right? Yeah,
3: and and I think in a larger, it's just part of that, 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 uh, ebb and flow. You know, in the '80s, everyone was getting tough on crime. We had three strikes and you're out. We were putting more people in jail, and because we've got to do something about this crime. And now we've, we're taking this look. Boy, we've got more people in in prison than anyone else, any other country. Mm-hmm. Or most other countries, and um, and we've got all these poor people, and Ferguson and forward through Ferguson, I think, put that in, in in real crystal form that, we're putting people in jail not for crimes but because they just don't have money, and that's that's like out of a Charles Dickens novel. We we shouldn't be doing that. So trying, and then we talked about this a few weeks ago, just trying to, find less. Uh, you know, crimes that where you have to go to jail, it it just doesn't make sense.
1: That's that whole mandatory minimum movement that started back in the uh, late 70s and through the 80s. And that, too, I think people are rethinking, thank God, um, because I mean, I think the point of the mandatory minimums was they wanted uniform sentencing across jurisdiction well that never really happened so
2: this whole uh, issue of criminal justice reform really is getting some traction there's yeah. no question there's a lot more conversation yeah. about things like this and conservatives are starting to see right.
3: i mean the, you know the liberals i think have already been a little more but the conservatives are starting to say boy we're spending a lot of our government dollars keeping people in jail maybe okay. maybe we don't want to you know have so many taxes going to that and we're know? running out of room We've yeah. yeah. already
2: run out of room in these places Any other thoughts? Other things that uh, along these lines that I wanted to mention, various Missouri legislative actions, uh, including such things as parole hearings for people who have uh, lifetime prison terms or serving them, eliminate the mandatory minimum sentences for nonviolent offenders. That's getting some discussion in Jefferson City. And, uh, again, Kim Gardner in the City Circuit Attorney's Office is expanding her diversion programs to help keep people out of jail. And uh, that, too, is something that's getting a lot of attention Don, I'm sure that you're you're well aware of that and probably um, in, in favor of
1: and it. And in favor of it, yes. No, I, no. I think anything we can do to uh, keep people out of you know, being incarcerated mm-hmm. at our expense and having their lives destroyed for nonviolent offenses makes sense. You know, that it sort of makes make, makes me think about all the people who are in prison in Missouri for pot, for marijuana, and now it's legal all over the country. But we've got people in prison in Missouri for sometimes for life sentences because it was their third strike. Uh, it, it seems to me to be uh, onerous and unworthy of us as as a society that we keep people in prison for things like that.
0: And right. it's you know it is one area where uh, conservatives and liberals can join together and ag- and agree and actually ha- take steps that are successful. You know that first step building. Uh, Congress passed right, uh, right around Christmas, right around the holidays. Uh, that was, uh, you know, Grassley together with Durbin. It was, it was a very bipartisan. I just hope it on this bail thing, I hope they, we really get it done this time. I, I, I have the, the, the recollection that I, I wrote a big series of stories in the early 1970s. It resulted in Missouri Supreme Court reform. It resu- resulted in a bill that passed the Missouri le- legislature. Kit Bond sent me the pen. That he signed the legislation with, but did it do anything? I don't think it did.
2: Well, <laughs> we've got a we've got a very conservative legislature, so we'll see
3: how it plays out. With yeah. uh, well,
1: so maybe with you should write some it. more stories. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah right. I guess so. <laughs> I'll send so, you a pen.
3: <laughs> if it was the early seventies, it's only been like forty five years, yeah, so yeah. you're due for another round. Oh, yeah,
2: well, impatient. You're being very impatient. <laughs>
3: <laughs> okay, couple, I, you
2: heard in the headlines there with regard to uh, the abortion issue and and the fact that. Uh, uh, we're, we're back to this admitting privileges thing again. <laughs> there are a couple of things going on here. Uh, the uh, Missouri Supreme Court, st- uh, not the uh, US Supreme Court, stopped Louisiana from enforcing new regulations on abortion. The justices said by 5-4 vote that they will not allow the state to put into effect a law that requires abortion providers to have admitting privileges. So here we are upholding it on the one hand, and the U.S. Supreme Court is denying it on the other.
0: Yeah, I'll be interested in reading that district court opinion that you just reported in the headlines uh, to see how they came up
3: with that, because... It sounds uh, a lot like whole women's health, doesn't it? I mean, it, it's exactly... So, yeah, yeah,
0: so a couple years ago, uh, in a Texas case, it the Supreme Court with Justice Kennedy uh, writing the opinion, said that, uh, that you, the states could not impose... Uh, requirements uh, that a person have 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 uh, uh, admitting privileges at a hospital within X number of miles, and that was a 5-3 decision, as I recall. And uh, so then a couple of uh, a couple of weeks ago, the Supreme Court uh, uh, s- uh, said, uh, uh, "Hey, Louisiana, there the, was there was a." There was a uh, uh, Louisiana had passed a law similar to Texas's and said you got to have admitting privileges, and um, a uh, the, the law had been put on hold, and uh, and the supreme the Supreme Court with Justice Roberts joining, um, the uh, the four Democratic appointed justices to make five, uh, said this law cannot be enforced. So how in the world a Missouri federal judge uh, you know could um, uh, come around to decide, oh, yeah, we're going to let the, let Missouri's law be enforced. I don't know exactly what the distinction would be. Roberts, uh, as you indicated, uh,
2: has, has sided with the uh, the liberal group in the, in the Supreme Court. Does this ruling on the Louisiana case give us a peek into what the court might be doing if other abortion issues come before well, the uh,
3: uh, court? This is what I think. I mean, what do I know? But Roberts, I mean, this is just to slow things down and— I don't think this is means that Roberts has suddenly switched sides or anything. I think when it gets to the Supreme Court, he he'll want to have a full hearing. I don't think they're going to overturn Roe v.ersus Wade, but I think they're going to start finding all of these things, all these little legislative hurdles that are put up. They're going to say they're no longer a substantial burden. We don't we don't find them to be a substantial burden, and so they while they won't. Overturn Roe versus Wade, they'll gut Roe versus Wade that way, and and it'll be a slow, gradual process.
0: I think that may be true. I mean, it, so it's a it's a what uh, Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts did. It's sort of it. It's sort of an insight into his thinking. I mean, the most important thing, to Chief Justice Roberts, who's going to be Chief Justice of this court for another two decades, uh, assuming he has good health, is that this Supreme Court have legitimacy. It right. looks like just. You now Trump appointing a couple of people changes all sorts of decisions it it looks like a court that just is is based on political decisions so he doesn't want that to happen Roberts was in the in the in the minority in the Texas case we were talking about about admitting privileges so he he thought in that case on the merits that the states could could adopt those uh, those kinds of rules. But then he just, I think, after after Gorsuch and— I mean, he didn't explain this. This is just mm. reading the tea yeah. leaves. Uh, 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 after Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, I think he just felt as though it would really look bad if the Supreme right. Court just started dismantling Roe v. Wade you know,
3: uh, right off the bat, he's thinking mm-hmm. legacy.
2: He is. Um, he's right. thinking everyone, legacy. Everyone legacy, and it.
3: also I think t- legitimate concern for the institution of the mm-hmm. Supreme Court. Yeah, and it's exactly. legitimacy. We'll have another
0: a- another insight. in there's a case that's uh, been been passed on from conference to conference to conference. The conferences are when they decide whether to, the Supreme Court justices decide whether to hear a case on an Indiana law. Uh, that regulates how f- uh, fetal body parts uh, can be disposed. And it also says you can't have an abortion if they're up for a genetic abnormality. Uh, Pence signed it when he was governor. Uh, if, um, and the courts, uh, federal courts have said that law cannot go into effect. So it's sort of in the same position as the Louisiana. Well, was. And so if Robert's in that case, which he's clearly not has, is having trouble deciding what to do, if he in that case lets that law go into effect, then, you know, yeah. it's going to be hard to tell where, where things are going. Yeah, uh, I'll just
2: mention this and comment uh, if you think it's worth commenting on. The Missouri Supreme Court has rejected a suit by a woman challenging the state's abortion law, Missouri, of course. She claimed on religious grounds that she should not be subjected to Missouri's 72-hour waiting period or informed consent law, which was involved reading a pamphlet of some sorts, talked
3: about. They talked about life beginning yeah. at conception, and she said that was contrary right. to her religious views. So,
2: that was rejected. Here we go again with the.
0: Uh, yeah, that was an easy one for the Missouri Supreme <laughs> Court. That was that wasn't going to ever go anywhere. She I mean, was, ba- yeah, the the, the decision the, the decision, they point out that she didn't explain why a seventy-two hour waiting period
3: uh, violated her religious. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Beliefs. She just said that she had to travel to and from. That's right. not a religious issue. Yeah. And what was her r- religious affiliation? She, it was some was sort a, of weird, a, wasn't a Satanist it? of some type. Yeah. yeah. Okay.
1: And the other thing is, she got to have the abortion, so that I think that the court just said sure. yeah. seventy-two hours. Who cares? I think her pregnancy was in twenty fifteen,
2: if I remember <laughs> correctly. That's so.
1: right. Yeah.
2: Okay, let's take another break. Time is moving along so quickly. We'll continue our conversation with legal roundtable panelists in a moment. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. And welcome back to our legal roundtable panel discussion with attorneys Donna Harper, Bill Freyvogel, and Mark Smith. There are attempts in both houses of the Missouri legislature Uh, to cover proposed legislation, ostensibly to level the playing field in Title IX collegiate sexual abuse cases. Uh, It's designed to offer more protections for the accused. Donna, I know this is something you wanted to talk about. This reminds me of what Betsy DeVos, our education secretary, has been saying, that she sort of wants to give the accused, generally the male, uh, more protections.
1: Yeah, I actually uh, sent an email to Senator Romines asking him to help me understand this, and I have yet to receive a response. He's the um, sponsor. He's the sponsor of the, the bill, Senate, right? right? I mean, the, the the bill as it is written says its purpose is that uh, to, that individuals have the right to defend character. That, to me, sounds like it's a bill written on behalf of people who are accused. Rather than a sort of an even-handed mm. bill, that's that—that's what it says right in the in the statute itself at one seventy-three point eighteen ninety-eight. Um, the the, one of the things that I find really troublesome about this bill is that you'll recall two years ago, uh, the Sen. The, the Senator, I'm sorry, Governor Greitens in August of 2017 signed into law amendments to the Missouri Human Rights Act. And when he signed those into law, he took away any liability for individuals who violated uh, the employment discrimination mm-hmm. statutes. So sexual harassers. People who are uh, who hang nooses on other employees' lockers, no individual liability. Now, fast forward a year and a half later, and now it's they are instating individual liability for anybody who works at a college or university who's involved in any of these investigations. If you believe you have not gotten due process from that person the individual who believes he hasn't gotten due, per- due process can sue the individual university administrator, but you can't sue the person who actually did the wrong thing to you if you're an employee. I, I just find that two-faced. I, I, I don't even know. I, it takes my breath away. Also, a,
0: also, if I understand the the, the bill correctly, it, it allows uh, the person who uh, is, if, if it's believed that the complaint uh, you know, usually by by the woman is false. Uh, the accused uh, can seek actual or punitive damages from uh, from her. Um, I mean, punitive <laughs> damages
3: are a big deal.
0: And yeah,
1: yeah. and the uh, the school who is conducting the investigation. And these things aren't criminal, and they aren't civil. Mm-hmm. This is a school deciding. How do we want our campus to be run? How do we want, what message do we want to send? Who do we want to support here? The school can be sued for breach of contract up to $250,000. If the school suspends somebody who is accused of date rape, for instance, mm-hmm. or drugging somebody's somebody's drinks or any kind of sexual assault. There's also, before the school can find violation, this statute says that the legal standard for that is clear and convincing evidence which is not the standard in, in most civil actions. It's preponderance of the evidence. It's not clear and convincing. That's one of the highest standards you can get. So you can't even find, a school can't even, can't even believe, in most cases, the woman who says this is what happened and I didn't give consent unless there's clear and convincing evidence. And you know, in a one-on-one situation, when is there ever gonna be clear and convincing evidence? What's, what's behind all of this? <laughs>
2: Betsy DeVos. <laughs> Betsy DeVos. I mean, this, right. this is uh,
3: Missouri passed, or is proposing this law. Arizona proposed a similar laws, law. You know, De, um, DeVos has uh, proposed all these regulations, and there was the notice and comment period. So I know a lot of our students at WashU were commenting, and some administrators commented, but they don't have to accept those comments. And and I think you know as. As Donna said, this is a complicated area of the law because you have these events that happen. And the law comes at it in a lot of different ways. One way is through the criminal uh, process. So uh, a survivor, which, by the way, in this Senate bill, you couldn't call yourself a survivor, um, but you'd have to call yourself the complainant. But um, the survivor could bring a, a criminal action. Oftentimes, for a variety of reasons, they choose not to do that. And then you can you can, under Title IX, come to the university saying this, this event happened towards me and it's affecting my educational experience based on my sex. I was attacked based on my sex and and because of that and seeing my assailant on campus, I can't get an education here. So that's a Title IX, much like a Title VII hostile work environment or something. And then you also have, as as Donna said, universities which say to their students, we have certain standards that we enforce as a student of this community that we expect you to adhere to. And so universities want to have a right to enforce those standards as well. And, and then you get issues of like burden of proof. Clearly on a criminal case, it's beyond a reasonable doubt. But on Title IX, which is more like a civil thing, it would be Preponderance, but now they're going back to these higher levels, and then what does the university have to do in terms of re- enforcing their particular rules? So it's very complicated. Plus, as somebody who works with undergrads every day, you know, oftentimes I'm not saying always, but oftentimes these cases involve, you know, two 19-year-olds who are drinking, who've drank way too much, who have not been sexually active before and don't know, and they're both, maybe that one's blacked out, maybe they're both blacked out, and something happens, and and it's traumatizing, um, and and then somebody's gotta deal with it. It's very difficult. I mean, the
0: bottom line is it makes it a lot harder for, a, it's already hard for a victim of sexual assault to right. you know, stand up and make a complaint, and uh, this just makes it harder. It puts all sorts of possible Adverse consequences
1: on on her, and it puts a lot of a lot of burdens on these universities. Every one of these universities that gets Title IX money has procedures in place, and they have been trying more or less effectively, depending on what institution you're talking about, to protect students and provide an environment where everyone can get an education. Now the school officials are going to have to, if this bill passes, the school officials who make decisions in the context of complaints by by students against other students are supposed to disclose their prejudicial beliefs or previous experience that may be uh, an actual bias or that might be perceived as bias. So what does that mean? That uh, okay. they have an investigator who's looked into 10 of these complaints and found that in nine of them something awful happened and the perpetrator needs to leave the school. Is that the right. uh, a prejudic- previous experience? that might be perceived bias. us? They got to fire the investigator who finds that? I mean, what is this all about? Who writes this stuff? <laughs> <laughs> <Good>. Romines. <laughs> yeah, right.
2: Oh, well, And anything you want to add to that, or shall we, shall we move on? <laughs> Don, want, I'd like him to I write me to, back on my email. <laughs> well, maybe he's listening. I hope so. Uh, OK, let's move on to something else. Um, Missouri lawmakers moving to take the sun out of the sunshine law, making it more difficult to access public records. Bill, I'm going to toss that your way because you're the the (laughs) journalist attorney here, uh, and I know this strikes you at your core.
0: Yes. uh, I mean, what's amazing about this is that 62% of the um, voters uh, passed, uh, I think it was Proposition 1, Amendment amendment 1, 1, constitutional amendment that... That opened up the you know the records of, of state legislators, and then the state legislators are are saying, oh, we're so worried about our constituents, we want to protect them um, that we're going to close, we're going to do the opposite. We're going to close close up those records. I mean, for one thing, I mean, what about the sort of basic uh, you know constitutional law tenant that you can't pass legislation or or a house rule or something. Uh, that's contradictory to part of the Constitution. And, and more broadly, I mean, the Missouri legislature is just, um, you know, time after time after time uh, undoing the votes of large majorities of, of the Missouri voters, you know, whether it's concealed carry, whether it's right to work, whether it's minimum wage, whether it's reapportionment, whether it's uh, the sunshine law, you know, they, they just think uh, they can ignore what a majority of the, of the voters say. And as long as the majority of the voters let them do that, you know, they're going to be stuck with legislators who don't listen to them.
2: They really seem particularly upset with Amendment 1. I mean, as you've indicated, yeah. there are a number <laughs> of avenues they're taking to try to undo what the voters yes. have
3: done. But like Bill said, I mean, this is just dumb because <laughs> you, don't, you can't overturn I mean, as soon as the statute gets passed, somebody's going to challenge it Mm -hmm. saying it's unconstitutional. I don't even know what they're thinking
1: here. I just don't get that. Well, it it there's only one lawyer left in the legislature. Really? That's what I heard. I don't know if it's true. (laughs) I don't know either. Only one, only one lawyer left. So, yeah, somebody told me that there's only one lawyer elect, le- left in the legislature.
3: Maybe it just seems that way. So. <laughs> well, you or know, you know right? Richard, Richard III said, uh, first thing we do is kill all the lawyers, and that's because he wanted to eliminate the rule of law. So I know people sometimes hate lawyers, but we're, we're kind of good at following the rule of law most of the time, so... Well, some of my best
2: friends are you. <laughs> <laughs> <I'll just laughs> we appreciate that. the fact
3: that you... <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: move on to something else as the clock begins to tick a little more rapidly. The exclusion list. judge here tossed a temporary restraining order sought by St. Louis Police Union attorneys to block the release of a so-called exclusion list of officers who were banned from bringing in cases for prosecution, that of obviously here in the city of St. Louis. The judge also blocked a union attempt to question an official and the circuit attorney, Kimberly uh, Gardner's office about creation of this list. Why are they seeking to uh, to uh, block the release of the list? Do we know?
0: Well, I guess I guess they don't want the names of these twenty five of these police officers to, it's to become their public. they hurt their reputation. Yeah,
3: that it's somehow. But God, the I mean the, the St. Louis Police Department could not be doing. A worse job of supporting this lawsuit. I mean, the, there was the case last week where the police officers stole somebody's phone. So this person is being booked and this cop comes by and just takes the phone and the, it's, you know, and those, the station houses are all, uh, cameraed up and it, it's just like, it's just stupid. And so, and then all the other stuff that's been in the news, I mean, I, I think this is a, uh, that, you know, they got Selzer to, back them, but Court of Appeals said, no way, and I think this they're not going to be able to block this. And it's already starting to leak out, is what I hear. So,
2: Yeah, I, I'm pretty certain that uh, the number of attorneys in town have that list mm-hmm. and can use that effectively in their right. defense, right, Criminal,
1: right, criminal defense lawyers, I, I'm yeah. sure some of them have it. Yeah, yeah. and Ch-
2: that's really upsets the apple cart when they have that list when it comes to uh, prosecution, doesn't it? I would think so. Yeah. Well, time again, marching away. I wanted to bring up something that uh, we had not indicated earlier that we might want to be talking about, but Bill brought it, Bill brought it to my attention this morning. And that is that uh, Clarence Thomas wants to revisit the New York Times versus Sullivan. Sullivan ruling on libel and defamation. That's the 1964 opinion, holding that public officials have a, a higher burden to prove libel. Again, back to you, Bill, on, on uh,
0: Justice Thomas's uh, effort, here, apparent effort. Yeah, well, I, I guess I think he won't, in the end, be successful. New York Times versus Sullivan is, is, is like, one, along with Pentagon Papers, you know, is like one of the most important precedents for uh, media and, and, and the press. It was also really important. Um, it's interesting that Justice Thomas takes this view because it was an incredibly important civil rights decision in a way. Because at the time of New York Times versus Sullivan, uh, Southern segregationist um, officials. Uh, like Sullivan had had won five million dollars in judgments against the New York Times, and a million and a half dollars in judgments against CBS. They were trying to get the news media out of the South because they knew they were losing on segregation because of the of the stories and uh, the TV pictures of police dogs attacking uh, civil rights uh, lawyers, uh, civil rights uh, protesters, and and the like, uh, and. It was just a way for them to try to kill the civil rights movement. And the Supreme Court saw that and said, you know, we've got to have – I mean, the phrase that Justice Brennan used was we've got to have – democracy needs breathing room. And so if, uh, if an ad in the New York Times misstated the number of times Martin Luther King had been arrested right. and said it was seven instead of five, uh, no big deal. That's not, that's not going to be something that – Uh, a a public official who hasn't even been named in the ad can collect on. Uh, You know, the thing that sort of followed up the Clarence Thomas deal, though, is that, uh, you know, we have this $250 million lawsuit against uh, the Washington Post uh, for Mm -hmm. their coverage of that young man from Covington, Kentucky, who was on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial uh, in uh, face on the Native Nick American, Sandman. And, right? Yeah. Sandman, yeah. right? Yeah. And you know I think that's that's uh, that's a that's a pretty uh, threatening case for 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 the media. The person who's who's brought the case, uh, represented Richard Jewell, who you'll yeah. remember was the falsely accused Atlanta. Uh, <laughs> Atlanta bombing yeah. suspect uh, who had actually had found the the, the bomb and alerted people. Um, so he's not, you know, he's a serious lawyer and it is you know it it, i do think as a a journalist i do think that the media um i mean the media's really got to be careful like jumping on these on these uh you know these uh viral videos before they know what's going on you know this viral video came from some from uh i think I, i think it was from a twitter site you know nobody people haven't even pinned down what it, what, who, who the source of it was, and uh, and and it did lead to some very misleading initial impressions, and mm-hmm. and I don't think that the media in general was careful enough in in giving it some that story, some time to breathe. Well, look at the
2: Smollett case recently. Yes. The actor, is exactly the
0: same thing. Both both are the same thing. Yeah, yeah. and it's the, you know it's the hazards of today's media. Uh, I, I, I was thinking about this Lincoln Memorial case. I mean uh you know 20 years ago there never that story would not have happened there wouldn't have been a you know even if there were a reporter there there wouldn't have been a wouldn't awesome. have been a film crew nobody would have seen the standoff if somebody had gone into a newsroom and said hey I saw this happen nobody would have written a story this this is a story that you know now a whole nation knows about that no one would have known about before. Now we've all
2: got cell phones. Yeah. we can, we can right. take those pictures. Donna, did you want to? I just something?
1: wanted to say one thing. I mean, I I, I completely agree with Bill. that I think that the uh, Sullivan case is going to stand the test of time. And and one just tiny little fact about it: that was a nine to nothing unanimous right. decision. I mean, I think it, our Supreme Court now would be hard pressed to uh, chip away at or reverse the Sullivan case. Uh, it's you know it stood the test of time. Uh,
2: Very quickly, we only have a few seconds left. How do you revisit something like this? You have to wait for a case to come through. You have to wait for a
0: case to come up. And then you could could say, you know, it was was wrongly decided. But uh, Chief Justice William Rehnquist, you know, the very conservative former chief justice who was originally a skeptic on New York Times versus Sullivan, he finally, before he died, embraced it.
2: Have to let it go at that. A very fast hour. Lady and gentlemen, thank you so much for being with us, Donna. Great to see you again, Bill Freyvogel and Mark Smith. As always, good to see you. We'll see you in about a month. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.